electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 163 of the coronavirus crisis tonight. Texas seeing a big spike in cases. Is it a warning now for the rest of the country? Clearly, we are seeing a spike, and we are very concerned about that. Spike in Texas. Virus cases are surging. Tonight, what's happening on the ground? Plus, China brings down the barriers and puts the thermometers away. Can they finally declare victory over the virus? New worries cast a shadow on America's food supply. From the land to the sea. And one amazing fish story. All for a great cause. This CNBC special report starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday night. New coronavirus cases spiking in a number of states this evening, but perhaps most notably in Texas, where the seven-day rolling average of new cases is now at a new high. The city of Houston is in Harris County, which has more coronavirus cases than any other county in that state. Dr. Umer Shah is the executive director of Harris County's Public Health Department. He's with us live this evening. Dr. Shah, welcome. It's good to talk to you tonight. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. How concerned are you? Well, we are concerned, as you can imagine. I mean, we've done a fantastic job as a community uh, in our our community uh, fighting this virus for months. And we certainly don't want to go backward. Obviously, the concern is what you've talked about at the top of the hour with increased cases in Texas. And certainly we're also seeing some of that bump here in our community. And that is concerning to all of us. Did Texas reopen too soon? It's a tough question. Um, You know, I I will say that there was contribution to uh, reopening across the country, right? Reopening means that you're going to have increased people getting together and and potential for transmission. Uh, But what we don't know is how much that has contributed. We also know what I call it is a layering effect. It's all the reopening. But on top of that, it's milestone events like Mother's Day, Memorial Day weekend, you know, activities, graduations that all come in to play then and it becomes really hard to then untangle it. Do you think people in your state have been too complacent about the virus? Are are people wearing masks and gloves? Are they distancing as as you would like? Well, you know, you know, this is a this is, again, a, a, a challenging question because I do think there's an incredible amount of people in our community specifically and across Texas that that are listening to those messages. And we have been saying, look, you can reopen, but you can also reopen safely with with health and and uh, safety in mind. Uh, When you see people out, you do see masks, you do see people social distancing, but you're not seeing it everywhere all the time with everyone. And I think this is where the medical community comes in. You know, a doc like me, I 
when we wear a mask or we do something in the medical you know, facility, in a healthcare facility, we know we have to be meticulous about it and it has to be universal. But when it's summer, it's 90 degrees outside, people say, gosh, I wore it yesterday. Maybe I wore it this morning, but not now in the afternoon. You have to be 100% about it, and that's the real challenge. I'm sure you're watching your hospitals very closely. What can you tell us tonight? How close to capacity are emergency rooms and, and hospitals in general? Well, you know, we've been watching a lot of indicators. Our, our county leadership, led by Judge uh, Lena Hidalgo, and and even in the city with uh, Mayor Turner, there's been a lot of real activity. We've been working with our Texas Medical Center colleagues. You know, TMC, Texas Medical Center, is the largest in the world, and there are an incredible amount of institutions. I'm I'm a 20-year, uh, you know, uh, 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 proud member of TMC institutions. What I will say is that you've seen an increase especially in the ICUs. And, and it was previously somewhere in that 10, 11% were COVID-19 positive. It's inched up and now we're seeing it at 15%, which is, may sound not a lot, but it's enough that makes us worry that this may be the beginning. And so we wanna make sure that people are not complacent and any inconsistent messaging that's coming from a national, state or local level can cause complacency and confusion at the local level with the community member who says, gosh, if they don't have all the information consistent, maybe I do not need to worry about this. But we want to remind everybody that this pandemic is with us. If we are tired of this virus, this virus is not tired of us. It's up to all of us to fight it for our communities. Have you spoken with Governor Abbott lately? Do you know what his level of concern is, either you're speaking to him or the mayor of Houston? Yeah, I haven't spoken, but you know, obviously we're in touch with the Department of State Health Services and and folks that are at the on the health side of the house. And I know our elected leadership have been uh, having discussions with all sorts of uh, the policymakers at the state level. I will say that everybody recognizes that we have gotten to this point where we want to uh, see our communities uh, open reopen because we want to make sure that the economy uh, and and what this incredible disruption on people's lives, that that is addressed, it's improved, and we can move forward. But we have to do it safely. And health protocols, especially in establishments like restaurants and other places, it's not just about the restaurant owner or the establishment owner. It's also about the consumer and the customer saying, I've got a choice to make between two establishments, one following the health protocol, one maybe not so much. I'm going to vote with my feet and go to the one that's actually following those health protocols. That's what we're relying on. But we also have to rely on those policymakers to make sure that those policies are consistent with health and medical as well. Dr. Shaw, we appreciate your time this evening. We'll be following your story. Great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Good to have you on our program. Let's bring in now CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former commissioner of the FDA. Dr. Gottlieb, good to see you again. How concerned are you by what we're seeing down in the state of Texas tonight? Well, look, it's concerning. Texas has an outbreak underway. I don't think it's so far gone that they can't get control of this, but they do have a large outbreak underway. They're recording about 1,500 new cases a day. And the positivity rate's going up. That's what's most concerning. So they can't argue that they're getting more cases just because they're testing more. Their positivity rate's going up, which is an indication that they have a spreading infection in that state. Um, Their census in hospitals is at an all-time high relative to where it's been over the last about six weeks, 2,000 cases now in their hospitals. Um, And the positivity rate's around 8%. And so that's all concerning. If you look at Texas Medical Center alone in Houston, that really seems to be the epicenter of the outbreak right, right now. They're admitting close to 100 COVID patients a day. 
To put that in comparison, all of New York City is probably admitting fewer than 50 cases a day right now. And so that's a pretty large outbreak in Houston. Again, I think they have an opportunity to get this under control. The question is, is the city, is the state prepared to take some of the mitigation steps that can help them get this better under control? Let's talk about what they would need to do right now. What would you advise Governor Abbott to do this evening? Well, I don't think it was the timing of the reopening in Texas. I think it's the speed of the reopening. Texas reopened a lot of things very quickly. They didn't stage it as much as other states did. So they started to reopen recreational activities, indoor recreational activities like restaurants, bars, things like that, sooner than other states. And so you might want to take a look at some of those and maybe dial it back, close some of those establishments, slow down any continued reopenings. They're talking about refilling stadiums with, uh, with sports fans, things like that. I think they're going to have to pump the brakes a little bit on their, their plans to reopen more aspects of that state to wait and see what happens with this um, and whether or not they can get control of this epidemic. I think that the benefits of the sort of seasonal impact of this probably are largely felt already. There's not going to be much more benefit in a state like Texas, a city like Houston, which is already hot and humid. And so they're already having a seasonal impact in terms of reducing cases because they're entering the summer. Now they're bumping up against just the fact that this is spreading. And what happens if they don't heed your advice tonight? I mean, you are suggesting this evening that they shut down some of the businesses that have been reopened. Well, look, that's the challenge here. It's very hard to go backwards. It's going to be very hard for any governor to go backwards after reopening aspects of this state. Um, And I think that's why this is so challenging, because we're not likely to... Uh, do a simultaneous national shutdown again, even if we have an epidemic. I think we're going to have to reach for other measures like widespread testing, universal masking, the case-based interventions, trying to isolate people who are sick. I don't think that we're going to be shutting down businesses on a wide scale again. But Houston needs to look at what they can do um, to target the places where this is spreading. They need to figure out where it's spreading. So if you look at South Korea, they figured out that they had an outbreak that was spreading in certain kinds of bars and and ping pong halls and they shut down the places where it was spreading so if houston's able to do good case-based interventions good track and trace and figure out the establishments where this is spreading they can isolate it in those establishments and either implement additional measures additional protections distancing in those kinds of establishments or close them for a period of time until they get past this outbreak but you know this has the potential to grow bigger if they don't get control of it soon they're, they're probably at a tipping point right now with the number of cases that they have. Certainly concerning. Are there other Texases waiting to happen? And where else would you be concerned about tonight? Yeah, there's about 15 states where the epidemic's expanding right now. You look at North Carolina, South Carolina. Arizona is probably the second most concerning. Um, About 30 percent of their ICU beds are comprised of COVID patients. 20 percent of the general hospital beds are comprised of COVID patients. They're diagnosing about 1,500 cases a day in a state that's a lot smaller than Texas. And so that's a hot spot as well. Um, Florida and Georgia, the hospitalizations have trended down in the last few days, but I expect that to tick up after you have sort of the weekend effect and we start to see um, cases get reported into the week. They look a little hot as well. They have an expanding epidemic as well. The R, if you will, the transmission rate is above one. And so it's about 15 states in all, 12 to 15 states where they're still expanding in terms of the number of new cases and the epidemic itself is still growing. You know, Dr. Fauci gave a pretty grim assessment, I'd say, today of the virus at a virtual conference. He said we are still, quote, at the beginning. And he said he was amazed at how easily this disease has spread, how quickly it has spread around the globe. Dr. Gottlieb, you share his his views? 
Well, look, it's a highly contagious virus. This is much more contagious than the flu. The, the R, if you will, is between two and three, meaning for every case you have, you're going to get two or three new cases. With the flu, it's like 1.1, 1.2, depending on which season you're in and how virulent the flu is. So this is a highly contagious virus. Um, it hit us at a, a sort of inopportune time. We weren't in our summer yet. We were still coming out of the winter. Um, so we didn't have a seasonal benefit of, of entering into the summer. Um, we're not through this. I don't, I don't know that we're at the beginning of it. I think we're somewhere in the middle. We have one more round of this virus before we get to a vaccine. We're going to have to get through the fall and the winter. Uh, hopefully we get through the summer. I think we will. We're going to have isolated outbreaks like Houston. Hopefully states are going to deal effectively with those. Um, but we really need to get through the fall and the winter. And again, the challenge for us is we're not going to want to go backwards. It's going to be very hard to shut down the economy again. I don't think we do it. I think we're going to have to look for other kinds of measures. We're going to have to lean heavily on things like masking, testing, asking people to self-isolate when they have symptoms. Those are the kinds of interventions we're going to have to rely on. And I think we're just going to tolerate or have to tolerate a higher level of spread um, and hospitalizations. The, the healthcare system needs to be prepared for that. All right. So we need to keep our eye on Texas and Arizona, among other places. New Jersey, by the way, today is going to allow outdoor gatherings of up to 100 people. Is that a good policy? Well, look, if you look at the states, you go to rt.live, and that sort of tracks the epidemic state by state, and you look at the states in terms of where it's expanding, where it's contracting, the four best states are Hawaii, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And so the tri-state area is actually in very good shape. Now, they paid a very heavy price for that in terms of the mitigation they implemented and the scope of the epidemic that they sustained. But right now, the tri-state area is in very good shape in terms of a contracting epidemic, um, a shrinking number of hospitalizations, new cases being turned over on a daily basis. And so this, this area can't afford to take a little bit more aggressive measures in terms of the reopening relative to other parts of the country that never really got out of their epidemic. I mean, Georgia, Florida, Texas, they never really got their caseload very far down. They always had a sort of slow burn at a very steady level of infection, and now we're seeing it tick back up again. You know, we, we're talking about reopening, obviously. This evening, we've, we've seen New York City try and get back to business. It's in the very early stages, obviously. You said today on Twitter that temperature checks are not a reliable way to check for the disease. I thought that was interesting that 70 percent of those in New York sick enough to be hospitalized, Dr. Gottlieb, and presenting symptoms didn't have fevers. Right. A very good study in JAMA looked at people who were being triaged and admitted to the hospital. So they were sick enough to be hospitalized for COVID. And only about 30 percent of them had fevers on presentation to the emergency room. Um, what you really need is a layered approach to try to spot this infection. So if you're a business, you can do temperature checks, but you really should couple it with a very exquisite health questionnaire. Um, and that's a symptom check. So if you have a good symptom check with fever checks, that can get you to maybe 40 percent identification of cases. And then you have to have a way to reflex people to testing so that if you identify anything on a symptom check, you, you direct them to go and get tested and you actually try to facilitate that. And so in ideal circumstances, something where you have an electronic tool, you ask everyone to log into it in the morning, they go through a symptom questionnaire. Um, if they pass that, they come to work, they get their temperature checked. If they pass that, they work. If they fail any aspect of that, then they go and they get referred to testing. Or if they think they've been in contact with someone with the virus, that would be another indication for testing. Businesses need to think about setting up that kind of a layered approach. If they have that, they're going to catch more cases. It's not foolproof, but it's better than, you know, doing nothing. Yeah. I want to get to one tweet tonight, if I could. It's the last one on our list. 
Uh, it says, I've been hearing that warm weather is a deterrent to the virus. And we were just talking, Dr. Gottlieb, about what we're seeing down in Texas. But in speaking to relatives in India, says uh, the questioner tonight, uh, keep hearing that the number of cases is rising. Can you help reconcile how that's happening? Uh, it doesn't seem as to what you're saying and what our, this gentleman here is saying uh, that heat, warmer weather is is a deterrent, maybe to the level that some thought it would be. Yeah, this is highly debatable how much there is a seasonal effect here. And there was a very good study done in South America that basically concluded that there is a seasonal effect, but but when it gets above a certain temperature, you really don't get the benefits of any more effect. So once you get into the summer, you're in the summer, you've sort of um, squeezed out all the seasonal effect you're going to get. So, you know, if Houston goes from 80 degrees to 100 degrees, they're not going to get much more benefit of a seasonal effect in terms of transmission of the respiratory droplets. Yeah, a lot to think about tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate your time as always. We'll see you again tomorrow night. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, now a CNBC contributor. With all 50 states at least partially reopened, we look again to China. As of today, that country doing away with checkpoints and temperature checks. Eunice Yoon showing us tonight what life is like in Beijing. Up until this weekend, boxing with others in a basement gym in Beijing was banned. But now that the Chinese capital has loosened more pandemic restrictions, people like Liu Jiayin are working out, even without masks. I feel safe, he says. The gym is professional and the ventilation is good. As New York and other U.S. cities try to reopen, Beijing could offer a look at what life might look like in two or three months. Beijing is becoming less strict about masks. Most people still wear them unless they're in a familiar place or outdoors. But rules are relaxing. This is a temperature check. But as you can see, it's empty. And more and more entrances of office buildings, apartment complexes and shopping centers are opening up. Restaurants no longer require customers sit three feet apart or register IDs as consistently. The looser approach is bringing relief to businesses like the basement gym and their workers. Our staff hasn't been able to work for the past six months and we're paid less than usual, he says. Now we pay them their full salaries. Another welcome step towards normal life. Eunice Yoon, CNBC Business News, Beijing. And here's what's coming up next tonight. Surf and turf. There are virus problems on both fronts, from beef to seafood. What it means for the American food supply and the people who handle it next. And how a Detroit businesswoman found gold in the midst of crisis. First, our nation on Tuesday night, June 9th, 2020. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. 
You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back on day 163 of the coronavirus crisis. Here are tonight's headlines. Dr. Anthony Fauci warning the pandemic isn't over yet and calling COVID-19 his, quote, worst nightmare. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy announcing the state is lifting its stay-at-home order, which has been in place since March 21st. California will reopen movie theaters and bowling alleys this coming Friday. America's food supply is not out of the woods just yet after the president's executive order more workers at meatpacking plants are reportedly getting sick. Now the fish industry also getting hit tonight. Rich Wheeler is the founder of 60 North Seafoods. It's a fish processing facility in Alaska. Jerry Mann back with us tonight. He's professor of nutrition science and policy at Tufts University. He's a former undersecretary for food safety. Gentlemen, good to have you with us. Rich, I'll begin with you. Tell me what you're seeing, what you're dealing with up in Alaska tonight. Okay, so we came in uh, great. First of all, glad to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, so we're, uh, we came in April 24th with uh, my crew and staff uh, all quarantining together in, in Cordova. And then we did our two, uh, two-week quarantine. And then from there, uh, so subsequently brought in, uh, well, probably another five employees. And then um, taking advantage of the, the services down in the lower 48 and having them tested before they get here. And then uh, having them tested again, and, and uh, we've had it, uh, no incidents of infection here. Wow! So you haven't had anybody get sick. Can you give give me an idea of how many people are on a ship uh, at a given time, and how long you are out at sea? So I'm on a land-based processor, and uh, so we have about uh, right now about 22 employees looking for us. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the uniqueness of Cordova, Alaska, is uh, our isolation. So their only way in is by boat and plane. Uh, the ferry system has been down since, I think, September 12th. And so really the only way in, you know, uh, during the winter months is by plane for the most part. And so uh, it's pretty isolated at this point. Yeah, Jerry, you know, we haven't heard very much, I have to say, about the meatpacking business uh, in, a, in a few weeks. How are things going? Are we getting any better? Well, I think we're getting better on the supply of meat. The interruptions that we were seeing before have gotten uh, better. There are fewer of those. Um, but in terms of the workers, things have not gotten better. Um, we're now up to 20,000 cases and 90 deaths. Do you anticipate that we're going to have to to shut down meat processing plants once again? We're already hearing about cases. I was reading about some cases in, in Utah and elsewhere. Well, the, the federal government, led by the president, put out an executive order on using the Defense Production Act saying that meat plants should stay open. Um, but what was not coupled with policies by the USDA and its Food Safety Inspection Service, CDC, OSHA, they put out guidance, but they still not put out requirements uh, to make those workplaces safe. Um, so uh, workplaces will stay open, um, but people will continue to get sick. And, and, and there will be deaths. What about the issue of prices? Are we been dealing with some uh, elevated prices when it comes to meat? Where are we in terms of that tonight? 
Um, you know, there have been some increases um, more than usual in food across the board, but I don't think there have been increases in meat beyond those we're seeing with other food right now. Yeah. Rich, how concerned are you uh, about the virus? No cases, you say, yet, uh, which is obviously a great thing. Uh, how much trepidation do you have that the, the virus is eventually going to find its way to where you are in, in Alaska and to some of the fishermen that you rely on? So at first, uh, I'll, I'll touch on the price. You know, for, for one, you know, there's a tremendous amount of overhead that's going into, you know, the, the mitigation of uh, trying to keep this virus out of Cordova and out of our industry. So, you know, we, we haven't, um, it, it, the price might be slightly elevated, to, you know, from normal, but uh, I am concerned, uh, and we're doing our part to, you know, help, uh, uh, you know, maintain uh, quarantine policy and, and uh, the health practices and everything else. What about, uh, you know, friends of yours that, that you have around the area there? Are, are they experiencing mm-hmm. a, a spike in cases, any increase, anything that we need to be worried about? No, no, not, uh, maybe over in, uh, maybe on the mainland, but not in Cordova. We, we had, uh, what we've seen is uh, one case come into town. Uh, the company that, uh, that had the worker uh, was quickly uh, isolated and, and proper procedure was, you know, followed and, and therefore, uh, you know, no incidents were, you know, after that. So, uh, you know, the, the systems in play uh, are working really well. You know, Jerry, you touched on something interesting. Obviously, the Defense Production Act, the president mandating that these plants have to stay open. There certainly doesn't seem to be the wherewithal or the political wherewithal at, at, at minimum to go back and shut these places down. Uh, there was a conversation I was just having with Dr. Scott Gottlieb regarding the spikes in cases that we're seeing in places like Texas, for example, and his, his uh, advice that maybe some of these businesses that have reopened need to go back and, and shut down for a short period of time. Do you think there's the wherewithal tonight because you are still seeing these cases pop up, as you said, to go back and shut them down? Well, I think the goal from the beginning is to, to maintain our food supply. Um, one of the most essential things, obviously, that we need is, is a strong food chain. And so these are facilities, unlike the rest of the country, other businesses that did shut down, uh, they've tried to stay open throughout so people have enough to eat. Um, the Defense Production Act sort of demands that they stay open. When they have closed, it's because so many workers have gotten sick that they're not able to, to maintain uh, being open. Um, I think that the plants, you know, their uh, incentive through the market is to get um, uh, keep the chain open, keep prices uh, relatively low. Uh, but they need help from the government in terms of keeping their workers safe. They haven't gotten that so far. They got an order to stay open. Um, but the reason they're closing is because people are getting sick. What we don't have is a standard by um, OSHA, by CDC, by the Food Safety Inspection Service. Uh, they need to put out a standard that can be enforced uh, that will help those plants uh, uh, keep safe. It's something they do all the time. You know, it's interesting. Um, they're dealing with infectious disease in terms of meat safety. There isn't a meat safety problem here, uh, but there is a worker safety and there is an infectious disease problem. Uh, CDC... Um, FDA, FSIS know how to solve those types of problems. They just haven't uh, tried to do it here. Keep our eyes on that for sure. Gentlemen, thank you. Rich Wheeler, Jerry Manns, good to talk to you tonight. We'll talk to you again soon. A lot more ahead tonight on this CNBC special report. Next tonight, where does the fastest growing line of business in the world stand when it comes to being diverse? Tonight, solutions for Silicon Valley. Plus, one amazing fish story. See who's helping to raise money for one beaten down great American town. We'll be right back.
Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. I don't have the diversity that I want. Did big tech just fail its big test? Meet a woman who found a new business in the midst of crisis. I love to be back with a little bigger vision. And Michael Jordan's amazing catch for a great cause. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. A long line of CEOs on CNBC again today discussing leadership and diversity. I never want to be uh, bragging like we've got the answers. I, as a CEO, I'm a white man of lots of privilege in my life. And having spent a lot of my life not actually understanding that privilege, I really hope that many more leaders, particularly white leaders, come forward. We have to fight every day. Systemic racism is everywhere in our in our country. And I, I really hope that more leaders stand up to be counted on taking specific actions. We know that talent and IQ is equally distributed, opportunity is not. We know that this population, this demographic, they do have the innate hunger, behavioral and cognitive abilities to succeed. It's only a matter of connecting them with the opportunities through education and access. More importantly, the knowledge, experience and network that makes this happen for them. If we can create more jobs and more opportunity for our black employees and other diverse employees, then we'll be doing our job. There's not enough black representation in research and development in pharma and biotech companies. That is just absolutely clear. So that's not something that it's a quick fix, but I need to invest in the education. I need to, like 23andMe ourselves, we need to have intern programs. What are ways that we can support that kind of growth? And I think the entire industry, all of Silicon Valley has a responsibility to making sure that the funnel of people coming in are diverse and that we're evaluating our own culture to see whether or not anything is impeding um, a diverse culture. That was the CEO of 23andMe, Ann Wojcicki, on Closing Bell earlier today after repeated promises to do better Facebook increased hiring of black candidates by 3% to just 3.8% in five years. Twitter, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Apple all seeing low single-digit percentage increases for black employees in that same time span. Charlie Moore is the CEO of Rocket Lawyer. Stephanie Creary is a professor of management at the Wharton School, both with us tonight. Charlie, it's nice to see you again. Dr. Creary, welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. Charlie, you know, let's just begin with, with the simple question. Why has Silicon Valley been so far behind? Well, at Sil- in Silicon Valley, it's all about uh, invention and solving problems. And a lot of it has to do with uh, setting targets based on data. And so I think, uh, again, I said it last time we talked, 
Uh, it's about data and then uh, solving a problem and measuring success against that problem. And let's face it, uh, even on this network, until uh, the martyrdom of Mr. Floyd, uh, this was not a top of mind issue until very recently. I'm, I'm glad that it is, and I hope that Mr. Floyd's martyrdom does not go in vain and that this does become an issue that Silicon Valley gets to work and innovates uh, in order to solve the problem. But it just hasn't been a problem uh, that has gotten the level of attention, quite frankly, that I think it deserves. And lastly, some of that uh, certainly has to do with the fact that uh, Silicon Valley doesn't look a lot like us right now. Uh, I think we've made progress, but we've got a lot, uh, a, a lot farther to go. Dr. Curry, what, what's going to change this? Uh, structural and cultural changes are certainly necessary. I think for a long time, the focus has been about getting people in. And, and certainly based on the numbers that we've seen reported today and the numbers you reported as well, is just trying to get people in the door doesn't solve the issue because what we know is there's a revolving door that happens. Structurally, many of these firms are not set up to manage the talent that's coming in the door. And culturally, they're also not conducive to sustaining people's careers and, and their well-being. So certainly structural changes and the focus on making structural changes in these organizations, in addition to making cultural changes, is, is definitely the next phase of this work. Charlie, you know, th- this has been a wake-up call uh, for everybody. And, and even, you know, take your words to, to heart what you just said. I'm wondering what your reaction is to what Ann Wojcicki of 23andMe had to say, essentially pointing the finger at herself and her own company, that there's not a single person of color at the executive level, on the board, in upper management, and wanting to make a a, a change. Do you applaud the fact that she's wanting to make the change, or do you admonish her for not having any people of color in those positions? Or frankly, is it a little bit of both? For me, it's absolutely uh, applause uh, for for Anne, and uh, I I've admired Anne for quite some time, uh, and what she does, and uh, I she absolutely, as a matter of fact, I'll give her credit for spurring me in the right direction. So I made sure to know our numbers uh, coming into this conversation. I know that uh, we are five percent African American at Rocket Lawyer. We are forty nine percent people of color and 43% women. So I think uh, we've got uh, work to do, although we're more diverse uh, as a company than than most. Uh, I absolutely applaud what she's done. And I'll say, look, it's, it's, a, it's broken. Um, our business exists to fix uh, the broken legal system, the fact that most people are priced out of justice. And we think we can invent uh, through technology to solve a lot of that access to justice gap we're not there, but we're working to invent and replace what's broken with something better. And so what Ann did, as far as re- being uh, revelatory uh, with data, is exactly what all of us in Silicon Valley need so that we can get to work. I'm extraordinarily hopeful. Um, I've met uh, so many smart people, so many people whose hearts are in the right place, and now we connect our heart being in the right place with our minds being the right place and get to work and go to action. We roll up our sleeves and we invent that's what we do in Silicon Valley. Dr. Curry, these were very self-reflective and honest comments today um, f- f- from Anne. How much of this really goes to CEOs, white CEOs in corporate America need to look in the mirror and realize that they are part of the problem 
And the good thing at this point is, is now they can be part of the solution. So I would say that there have been many white CEOs who have taken up the mantle to do diversity work in their organizations, but much much of the gains have been made around gender. Um, And certainly, if you look at these same Silicon Valley tech firms, you will see that they have made substantial gains in gender, but not as many gains in race. And so that really is, I think, the question at hand is, why haven't they made the gains in race? And I would submit to you that is because for a very long time, they've been fearful about having this conversation because it requires them to check in with themselves and their own personal beliefs around whether or not race is really still an issue, right? We have so many people in this country and around the world thought that we'd arrived once we had President Barack Obama as our, as our, you know, commander in chief, as our, as our president. Um, and so I think people became complacent at the same time. I think it's very easy for people to put their finger on what they think might be the issues around gender diversity, right? We can blame that on uh, work family issues, and that's certainly not the only reason for which why there's gender inequity in the workplace. But instituting policies around working from home and work family seems to be a, an easier fix and seems to be a way in which companies have characterized their gender diversity issues. But race is something harder, and that speaks to our core systems uh, around the uh, equal opportunity and who's able to get ahead or not. And I think that that's the look in the mirror that many CEOs have been doing in the last two weeks. Charlie, we, we need to turn our kids on. In fact, the matter is we need to turn our kids onto and get them excited about, regardless of what race they are, to science uh, and technology. And frankly, we need to look in the right place. And what's something you said in our last conversation really stuck with me, this sort of preconceived notion that you, you, you have to give, get more access to, to better schools Uh, better education. But you said, no, you need to look in places like historically black colleges where there are streams of people who would love to work in Silicon Valley, but maybe they're not being approached or looked at. And maybe they will now. Well, that's exactly right. And uh, those historically black colleges, universities are a great source of, of talent. Also, state universities, uh, also code academies. Um, I think, again, now is the time to reinvent how we think about the pipeline uh, to, to these technology careers. Uh, let, you know, look, it's, in, it's legendary and part of lore that some of the most successful tech entrepreneurs in the world are college dropouts. Some of the uh, best engineers at Rocket Lore, matter of fact, Scott, I made a commitment that we were going to update our apps to provide uh, an easy way for people to add video because video has become this really important evidentiary uh, deterrent and also really important evidence to hold uh, police accountable for misconduct. We're going to update our app. The guy, one of the key engineers that's working on that right now is in London, who I was talking to this morning. And guess what? He doesn't have a college degree. And so uh, there are a lot of sources of talent. We have to go out and find talent where it is. And again, I think in Silicon Valley, we really can invent and innovate our way to a better place. That's what we know how to do. And I'm very excited about uh, the energy and enthusiasm for doing so that's in in the air right now. I appreciate your time uh, so much in this conversation. I can tell you I'm glad we are having this conversation as we are now. Charlie, I appreciate your time. That's Charlie Moore, Dr. Stephanie Creary. We'll talk to both of you again soon. Here's what's next on this CNBC special report. We're feeding about 300 families a week. One couple's amazing contribution to their community. 
Plus, a Detroit businesswoman stroke of genius in the middle of a crisis. Every chance I get, I love to back And wait until you see what Michael Jordan reeled in today for one great cause. First, what our world looks like on day 163 of the coronavirus crisis. Two weeks ago, we told you about three businesses in Moorhead City, North Carolina, struggling to find a path forward. One ran a cherished local fishing tournament, and they were worried about turnout. Well, today, that competition went forward for charity. And take a look at that big fish, because it was caught by a big man. That guy right there, Michael Jordan. He flew in to participate in the tournament, and of course, he caught a big fish. Wasn't in first place, though, and I don't know how that's going to sit with Mike. I love to be back with a little bigger fish. You know, but, uh, it's always great to see people come out and support. And, you know, I've always felt like North Carolinians uh, always support their, their, their stars or the people that represent them well. And every chance I get to come back home, I look forward to it. And I appreciate you guys coming out. Even if I didn't win right now, today, you know, please, thanks for supporting the whole tournament because I think the tournament means a lot to the city. All right, good for charity, of course. The giant fish, as he said, wasn't big enough to win the top price, I be- prize. I believe they finished fifth. Nonetheless, a great day for a great, great cause. They raised close to a million dollars for local charities, by the way. Well, we've heard a lot from business owners in dire straits due to the pandemic. Gwen Jamir is the founder and CEO of Naturalicious. It was in the same boat until she had a brilliant idea for her beauty products company, and found a path forward. She is with us tonight. Gwen, it's good to have you here tonight. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, everything's going great. Your business is doing great. And then the pandemic hit. And then tell us what happened. Yeah, so the pandemic hit, and we found that we were suffering from a bottle shortage. Believe it or not, there is a shortage of bottles in America for beauty companies. And it affects not only us, but all the companies in our industry. And we found that we were having to mark items out of stock simply because we couldn't ha- we didn't have any containers to put our products in you had products that you, ha- you had products that you had to get rid of right i mean that the shelf life wasn't going to last long you had to figure out how to get these, these products out right well we had that issue but then to be honest we do a very good job with our inventory we don't hold a ton of inventory in stock and so we make sure we're always turning that inventory over so the biggest issue wasn't expired products it was more or less having to mark things out of stock because there were no caps and no bottles to put things in we've even resorted to working with some of our competitors in order to get some bottles we've literally called some of them and they've been gracious enough to sell us some of their bottles other ones have been gracious enough to just give us some some containers. And so we've worked with them, and it's been a really great coming together of people in our industry all together, making sure that we're all able to survive this pandemic. Yeah, you know better than everybody. I mean, small business owners, it takes ingenuity. You had to pivot. You pivoted and, and started making some hand sanitizer. But then you made an even bigger pivot, which maybe changes the future direction of, of your business. And, and that is the repair your hair challenge. You tell me about that. 
Yeah, so it is the most fulfilling thing I have probably ever done professionally. What we do is we take a slew of women who have decided that they need to figure out what to do with their hair. As you know, the pandemic has shut down everything. It shut down salons, it shut down beauty parlors, it shut down beauty supply stores. And so tons of people who are used to going and getting their hair done elsewhere, all of a sudden had to figure out how in the world am I supposed to do my hair? I don't know what to do. And so we came to we came to action and we answered that call and we created the Repair Your Hair Challenge, which is a 15-day uh, hair care boot camp, if you will, that takes you from start to finish and has amazing transformations in women in just 15 days. So what I do is I teach everything that took me 10 years to learn. I teach it to them in just 15 days. And the results have been astronomically amazing. We actually thought that we were just going to do it one time, but the results were so phenomenal that we've decided to do it quarterly. And so our next challenge actually starts July 15th, and the doors are open right now for people to sign up at repairyourhairchallenge.com. Oh, you'll have to let us know how that goes. You are based in Detroit, uh, which was very hard hit by, by the virus. Can you put us on the ground there? Tell, tell us how it seems to be doing now. Yeah, well, Detroit is a resilient city. I'm sure you've seen the, the shirts and the signs that say Detroit versus everybody. And it's no different during this time. Detroiters have all come together. We've rallied together. We've helped each other. And in the small business community especially, they have been especially helpful for those of us who are entrepreneurs. They've come together to provide grants to Detroit-based businesses, a lot of um, low-interest loan opportunities that we may have never had the opportunity to have. So I'm proud to be a Detroiter, love being here, and... Detroit versus everybody. Yeah, we appreciate you sharing your story with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for the time tonight. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, that's Gwen Jameer joining us tonight, the Naturalicious founder and the CEO. A pair of friends stepping up for their community. That is next, plus saluting America's restaurants as we always do, operating through the storm. That's next. Tonight, Two friends stepping up in Birmingham, Alabama, to get groceries to families in need due to COVID-19. It's really emotional to see someone pull up in their car and have tears in their eyes and say, thank you, I didn't know where my groceries were going to come from this week. We're feeding about 300 families a week. We have volunteers that come and help us bag up the groceries. And then on Fridays, there's just a two or three hour window of time where people come to the designated pickup location. Um, it's not just lower income or service industry people. It's, you know, a lot of more professional careers that you wouldn't think would be impacted by this as much as they have. You know, people in the photography industry that lost every one of their weddings and events this summer um, to a lady that, you know, worked at a local school as a secretary. And when school stopped, you know, the teachers were still getting income, but some of the secretaries and assistants we're completely furloughed immediately. We're not done with this COVID thing. Um, there's a lot of craziness going on, but I think we all need to continue just to take care of each other and be neighbors and love one another. And this is a great way to do that. That was Trip Cobb and Lindsay Noto stepping up for their community down in Alabama tonight. Time for our nightly shout out to restaurants. We have five of them operating in the face of the crisis to shout out tonight. Las Vajitas in Boca Raton, Florida. The Casa Bella in Denville, New Jersey. Old Town Cafe, Gaithersburg, Maryland, Moro's in New Orleans, Louisiana, and Speed Queen Barbecue in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Use the hashtag thanks for the grub, the name, the town, favorite restaurant. You can send us a picture and we'll get it on TV. Have a great night. Be safe. I'll see you tomorrow. Shark Tank is next.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 